Old Testament reading is from Job chapter 38. It's part of, well, of course, it's part of the larger book of Job, which I'll talk about in the sermon. Job 38 through 42 is all of one piece, though. And this just gives us a little smattering of what it's about, but it's a good start. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said... This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pistol readings from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul talking. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testified that they gave us as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. And now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? 
This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Job 38-42 through and uh, the Gospel reading this morning. The biggest barrier that people have to Christianity is the problem of evil. This is, I, so if you read any textbook on philosophy, uh, the problem of evil is going to come up. The problem of evil is how can, if there's a God who is completely loving and completely powerful, why is there evil in the world? He either must not be completely loving if he allows evil to continue existing, or maybe he is completely loving, but he's in some sense powerless to get rid of it, or he doesn't exist at all. Or he exists, but he doesn't care about us. Uh, this is the problem of evil. Um, like I say, whether you're studying philosophy on a university level, or whether you're talking to the average person on the street, whether you're talking to third and fourth graders, the, the problem of evil is people's main barrier to faith. I say third and fourth graders because uh, I, I teach at Good Shepherd Lutheran School, and uh, we do an ask the pastor thing in classes where you, you go and the kids ask you a question. And I'm just telling you that as early as third grade, the main questions that kids ask every year and in every class is, why didn't God stop Adam and Eve from sinning if God knew that everybody was going to die because of it? This is the problem of evil. We all understand that it's there. Now, a lot of times we as Christians, we kind of uh, medicate ourselves against that by just pretending that it doesn't exist. Uh, but it's there, and it's a, we all struggle with it from time to time. But Maybe not philosophically, you might not lay in bed at night and ponder the problem of evil. Uh, But when you find out that you have terminal cancer, you certainly do. You certainly ask the question, why is this happening to me? Why aren't you listening to me, God? I'm praying to you and I'm asking for help and I'm getting nothing back. Uh, By the way, the problem of evil has a kissing cousin and the name of that kissing cousin is the problem of good. This is the problem that atheists have. Is if there's no such thing as a God, then why are there good things in the world? Where does true love come from? Where does pleasure come from? Where does personality come from? And you can say, you can say, well, it's just all biology. We, you know, chocolate cake makes your neurons fire. Sitting on a tack brings you pain. So of course, that's what you, you describe good as something that affects you physically. But that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, explain morality. It doesn't explain how we all know that self-sacrifice is a good quality, even though it does not benefit you even though it brings you pain. We all understand, at least I I hope we do, that there are things worth dying for, that there are things worth paying the ultimate loss for, right? Your family. This is something, where where does that come from? That's not evolutionary. Knowing that my destruction, there are things that are worse than my own destruction. That is the problem of good. There's no answer for either of these problems, by the way. Atheism has no, no answer for the problem of good, and nobody has an answer for the problem of evil. Our two texts today uh, that we're going to talk about, we're not going to talk about 2 Corinthians 8, but our two texts, Job 38 and Mark 4, give us two different answers, both of them correct, to the problem of evil. Now, when I say answers, I don't mean that this is going to give you cognitive satisfaction. It is not. We, at the end of this sermon, are not going to understand why pain, why sin, why brokenness? Why death? Any more than you do now. But at least we'll have what the Bible says about it. And it's something that we can go on. It's something that we can go on. By the way, this is preventative medicine. When you are, 
when I come and visit you in the hospital and you're on your deathbed or when you've received the terminal uh, uh, cancer diagnosis or when there's a loved one that's really close to you that's passed away, I'm not going to come and I'm not going to say to you in that moment, hey, look, it's okay. All things work together for good to those who love God. It's a really flippant thing to say. And it's true, but it doesn't get to the heart of people's pain. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem of evil. So what instead we're going to do is we're going to grapple with all things work together uh, for good to those who love God before we get to the pain. So I mean by preventative medicine. You want to be able to, you want, you want to be able to, to digest this and to make this a part of your belief system so that when you do get the cancer diagnosis, when you do get the phone call about the one that you love, that you are theologically prepared, not to not, not, not to not feel pain, of course, not to not feel sorrow, but to understand what God is doing in this. And to be able, maybe better, not completely, of course, but maybe better to resist the urge to shake your fist at the sky and say, I'm praying to you and you're giving me nothing. What are you asleep? Hopefully that's what the sermon will do. Okay. So here's the first answer to the problem of evil. And it comes from the book of Job. And we read the first few verses of Job chapter 38. But let me kind of tell you the story of the book of Job to set up for a more extensive reading of Job 38 through 42. Job is a guy. Job is a guy who loves the Lord. Job is a guy who, because he loves the Lord, Satan, this is the beginning of the book of Job, Satan goes to God and says, I want to screw with Job. And God says, you can do whatever you want, but he's going to continue worshiping me, I know, because he's a righteous man. And Satan says, I bet he doesn't. I bet I can get him to curse you. And God says, I bet you can't. And Satan says, you want to bet? And God says, okay. God says, here's the deal. You can do whatever you want to him, you just can't kill him. Look, there's a reason why. Look, so so sometimes bad things happen, and we try to apologize for God. Like, well, he really is, you know, this this creates that problem of evil, actually. Like, well, I know he loves me, so why is this happening? I know he's strong, so why is this happening? Has it ever occurred to you that he's made a bet with Satan and letting Satan mess with you? I mean, it happens right here, and it's not, it's not tried, it's not covered, it's the main part of the story, it's the main part of the frame. It's not covered up at all. Am I saying that God doesn't love you? No, not at all, we'll get to that. I'm just saying God has his own ways. And you can't imagine for a second that you know what those ways are. That's where Job's going to end up. So all sorts of bad things happen to Job, and a lot of you know the story. His, his uh, kids are all killed, his property is destroyed, his crops are taken by foreign invaders. All of his movable assets are stolen. He gets all kinds of weird sicknesses. And the, the big bulk of the book of Job is Job saying to God, what's going on? Like, you're messing with the wrong guy. I, I did not, I didn't do anything. I didn't, what did I do? Somebody tell me what I did. He says to God at one point, he says, look, I, I'm innocent here. Like if you could, if you would show up and talk to me face to face, I could tell you that you've got the wrong guy, but you don't. You're no, why don't you do this? Send a lawyer, send a mediator, just send somebody that I can talk to and explain how you've screwed this thing up. And then he's got friends who say, no, 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 you're wrong. Here's the way the world works. You're suffering. You've obviously done something to deserve it. If you weren't suffering, you would know that you hadn't done something to deserve it. It's as simple as that. Read the book of Proverbs. That's what they say to Job. Like the righteous are happy and the unrighteous are sad. Those who call upon the Lord are wealthy. And those who reject the Lord are condemned to a life of poverty. This is what the book of Proverbs, read it. 
That's what the Bible says. And Job's like, no, you're completely wrong. You guys are wrong and God's wrong. I'm innocent here. I don't know what's going on, but I'm innocent. And that's where we get to Job chapter 38, which is the reading for today. God finally breaks in right at the end of the story and he says this. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Who? You're talking some big words, but you don't know what's going on. You have no knowledge. You don't understand me. I want you to stand up and come right in front of me. I'm going to ask you some questions here. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Here's some sarcasm. Surely you know. You were there, right, Joe? Me and you, we did this together. We built the entire creation. You're so smart. You must have been there when the world was created. Going on, this is past our reading. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn where its place is? Have you ever journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Can you raise your voices to the clouds and cover yourselves with a flood of water? Do you give the horses strength? Do you clothe the horse, horse's neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Does the eagle soar at your command? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Job, will you tell me what to do? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord. (laughs) Job taps out. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. I spoke twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord's like, no, I'm not done with you. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? To justify yourself? Would you say, God, you're doing something wrong to make yourself look good? And then he goes into this long description of two massive animals that we don't really know what they are, behemoth and leviathan, and says, can you create these massive beasts? Do you know how to design animals? Do you know how to create the world? Basically what he's saying is, I'm the creator of the world. And then Job says this, chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask me, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely, I spoke of things that I don't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And that's the end of the book of Job. There's no answer to the problem of evil except for God is God and we're not. You can ask him. It's not off limits. But he's going to come to you and he's going to say, okay, so you've designed your own universe, right? Let's have a discussion about what that's like. And at some point, if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to have to back off and say, I don't get to call the shots. I don't get to decide why things that happen to me shouldn't happen or why things that happen to me should happen, because I'm not God. And that's the first answer to the problem of evil, is that God is God and we're not. And like I said, that's not a cognitive answer. It's just who he is. And here's the thing. You're actually not required to like it. 
God nowhere says, well, it's, the, 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 book, the Old Testament is filled with examples of people who wrestle with God, who say to God, no, I, I don't like this. David does it all the time in the Psalms. God, where are you at? Like, I'm sitting here, and I'm doing what you want me to do, and I'm super poor. Or in David's case, he'll say stuff like, I'm on the run. I'm living out in the desert because people are trying to kill me. And there are people who are incredibly wicked, who murder and rob from the poor, who are dishonest, who cheat everybody, and they are sitting comfortably at home right now, incredibly rich. What are you doing? When are you going to step forward and put this to right? And God's going to say the same thing he said to Job. You need to be quiet because I'm God and you're not. So you don't need to like it. You're not required to like it. Can I kind of piggyback on my sermon from last week? God says certain things to us about our sexuality. You're not required to like say, well, that's really pleasant. I just love this. We are required to obey it because he is God, but you're never required to like it. Look, so frankly, there are lots and lots of times when I don't like being a Christian. But that's not the point. The point isn't that God is supposed to make me happy. And lots of times we turn Christianity into this, you know, God wants to save you so that you'll be happy and have peace. Look, I'm a believer, and there's frequently, I'll say frequently times when I'm unhappy, when I don't have peace. But that's not the point. The point is that He is God, and I am not. Now, if that's as far as it goes, maybe we can buy in, maybe we can submit ourselves to that, but it's still pretty cold comfort. It's cold, like, where is He? Does, does He even care for me? Or is He just like, pushing me around like a piece on a game board. And and he gets to do it because he wrote the rules of the game. That brings us to our gospel reading. Mark chapter 4. Jesus in the boat. There's a huge storm. And Jesus is sleeping, right? And his disciples wake him up and they ask the question of the problem of evil. Why are you sleeping? Don't you care that we're dying here? Jesus wakes up and he says to him, well, first of all, he calms the storm, you know, because that's what he can do. And then he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What does he mean by that? Have faith in what? Have faith that Jesus can calm storms? It's kind of a weird thing to believe if you've not seen it done before. Here's what they should have faith in. Jesus is God's son. They should know that by now in the story. He's just, the last thing he said to them before they all got in the boat together was, he's teaching a big crowd, and he says, Look, my kingdom is like a little tiny mustard seed. I'm telling you, this thing's going to grow. It's going to sprout. It's going to to become a shrub. It's going to become this big tree, and all the birds from the air from all over the world are going to come and make nests in it. That's the promise of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take over the whole world. Do they believe that? If they believe that Jesus is God's son who's going to conquer the whole world, then they should believe that he's completely bulletproof. That there's no way that boat's going down. It's not like God's going to say, oh man, I sent my only beloved son to rescue them from their sins and to take over the whole world. And then there was this storm that came up and the boat sank and now he's dead. And what am I going to do now? If you're with Jesus, you're good to go. That's what they don't believe in yet. That as long as they're with Jesus, they're bulletproof. Jesus is in the boat with them. This is the second answer to the problem of suffering. He's like, so you know, Job suffers, right? Job, Job loses his loved ones. Job loses his property. Job is homeless. Job is sick. Job is facing death 24-7. God is not distant, though. When we get to the Gospels, we see that God is in the boat, in the storm with you. 
God himself knows what it's like to be lonely. God himself knows what it's like to be sick. God knows, God himself knows what it's like to be abandoned. God himself knows what it's like to die. He's not some disinterested. He is the creator God. He does do things we don't understand. But he is not unwilling to himself participate in the very evil that for some reason we don't know why, but for some reason he's allowing to happen. Look, spread out over my dining room table right now is a board game that my son loves to play called Axes and Allies. It's if you've ever played Risk, it's like Risk, it's just on steroids. It's a World War II board game. It's a map of the whole world. And you have all different kinds of plastic figures that represent uh, armored divisions and infantry divisions and um, um, fighters and bombers and anti-aircraft guns and cruisers and battleships and aircraft carriers and destroyers and submarines. You have all these, and in the game, you're like pushing them around the board trying to win this game, right? And um, so you buy these things. Uh, you, you know, you buy a battleship, and uh, you pay for it with, you know, fake money, of course. And you put it on the board, and you send it into battle. And then it Harry's battleships in, in uh, a battle with my battleships. And we're rolling dice to see who's going to win. And uh, he wins, or I win. And, you know, I, say I, I lose. And I take my plastic battleship, and I throw it back in the, uh, I throw it back in the, uh, the, the container from where it came until I can buy a new one. And this is this is how we think that God treats us frequently, like when bad things happen. Like he he creates us. We're born. He pushes pushes us around the game board. He makes us do stuff, and then at some point he's going to kill us. We're going to die, and then he takes us and he flips us back. And does he even care, or is he like is he like Harry and I, where he, it's a piece of plastic? You know, it's part of the game. And Harry and I don't have any feelings about these imaginary people on these imaginary boats out on this imaginary game board. Because it doesn't matter to us, it's just a game. Is that how God feels about us? But if you look closely, if you, if you stop for a second shaking your fist at the sky and wondering where God's at, and lower your vision, you'll see that he's right there, right in the middle of the game board, hanging on a cross. Amen.